Amen. Uh, We've sung much already this morning and thought much, hopefully, as we've been singing about the great love and faithfulness of our great God. Uh, Hopefully, as we spend time in His Word now, our mind will be directed there once again. Uh, We have been, for some time now, working our way verse by verse through the book of Romans, which has been just a joy-filled journey in many ways. We took a break before Christmas to go through the book of Ruth during Advent and then through Matthew a bit over Christmas and New Year's. But now we're getting back into really the third section of the book of Romans. It's chapters 9 through 11. Really kind of the, the theme of this section being the gospel once again, but also God's promise and how he is faithful to keep it. We're going to see that, I think, very clearly as we go through chapters 9 through 11. We're going to take a relatively short amount of time to get through three chapters. It took us six sermons to get through just chapter 8. We're going to go through chapters 9 through 11 in six sermons and then get into chapter 12. And so as you meet in your life groups, you will be uh, going through uh, the the same stuff that we're going through on Sunday mornings and hopefully uh, what I might fail to get across to you as far as understanding the text might become more clear in your life group and certainly the life groups are aimed at helping us to apply the truths of God's word to our lives so hopefully that happens as well but here we are in Romans again starting in chapter 9 as if you have a bible you can turn there Romans remember is a book about the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ If you wanted to find the theme of the book of Romans, you might go all the way back to chapter 1. And since it's been a while since we've been there, I'll remind us of it. Romans 1, 16 to 17 said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the book of Romans is about good news or the gospel. That's what gospel means. It means good news. And the good news is about God and about His righteousness who comes to His people by faith. It's really the summary of what the book of Romans is about. But there's this section in that theme of Romans that we saw way back in chapter 1 that might make us scratch our heads a little bit. Why does he say it's the good news for salvation to everyone who believes, but then he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And by Greek he's referring to Gentiles or everybody who's not Jewish, right? So why does he say to the Jew first and then also to the Greek? What is that all about? And really that's what chapters 9 through 11 are addressing. We're going to see and hopefully have more clear answers to that as we go through these three chapters. Paul has made it very clear as he writes this book, this letter, really, to Christians in Rome. Remember, the Christians in Rome are mostly Gentile. There's a few of them that had been Jewish and converted to the Christian faith, but most of them were in some sort of pagan religion and had come to faith in Christ. So he's writing to these people to let them know that they can have confident hope for all of eternity in Christ and in Christ alone. 
He's let them know that we're all unrighteous. That's very clear in the book of Romans, that all of us are sinners. We're all unrighteous, and because of that, we don't deserve God's blessing and mercy. We deserve God's wrath. But Jesus was sent, God's own Son, was sent to take on the wrath of the Father in our place, dying as our substitute so that we could have new life in Christ, that we could be in Christ, through faith in Him, declared righteous. And then all of these benefits and promises come to us through our union with Christ, our faith in Him. So we just got done with Romans chapter 8. What a beautiful, beautiful chapter. For some, it's the most important or most, most meaningful and influential chapter in all of the Bible. We spent six weeks in it, just delighting in all of the promises that come to us as Christians in Romans chapter 8. But now, as, as these mostly Gentile Christians are fellowshipping with Jewish Christians and hear of the background that these Jewish people have and all of the promises that God had made to the Jewish people, they, along with the Jewish people themselves, might be wondering, what about all those promises that God made to Israel? What about all of the promises that God made to the Jews? Sure, all of us who trust in Christ are saved and receive all these benefits, but what about God's promises to them? The question is, will God keep His promise to Jewish people? Is God faithful? And who will God save? That's what Romans 9 through 11 is really answering. And so we're going to get a start today by looking through the first 13 verses of chapter 9. And let me just warn you as we go through, especially Romans chapter 9, that you're going to hear some things that maybe you just don't like. Okay? That's just a reality as, that's often what happens as we go through Scripture. That it's a revelation of who God is and how He works. And sometimes those things are confusing. Sometimes they're just flat out uncomfortable. But my goal is not to, as we go through Romans 9 through 11, my goal is not to tell you what you want to hear, nor is it to get you to believe what I believe about things like election and predestination and the nation of Israel. That's not my goal. My goal, I think, is what Paul's goal is, that he would answer some pressing questions about God's faithfulness, and that he would, that we would together, through going through these chapters, that the result in the end would be that we would want to worship a God who is sovereign and faithful. That's hopefully where we get to as we study this passage, Romans 9 through 11. So, today, the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 9, if you're able to, would you please stand as we read God's Word? I'm going to pray first and then. We'll read it, Father, we are desperately in need right now of you, by your Holy Spirit, getting our minds and hearts in the right place that we would be ready to receive your word. I pray that the result of it this morning would be that we would desire to worship you, the God who is faithful and that we would desire to proclaim the gospel to those who are still lost. 
I can't make that happen by just preaching the right words, but your spirit can make that happen as your word is read and proclaimed this morning. So would you be pleased now to do that by your spirit for your glory and for our joy? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read God's word in Romans chapter 9. God's word says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You can be seated. So as I mentioned in your bulletin, you might find that there is a, hopefully we'll find that there is an outline for you and a life group application guide. And again, if you are not in a life group, I would encourage you to uh, call the office and get in. Well, there's nothing on the screen. Oh, wow, that's fuzzy. That's nice. Um, Not sure what happened with that. Uh, And it would be really helpful if we can get it going because uh, there is some stuff on there that I think will help make this a little bit more clear. So, They're working on it back there. They're working hard. They look like they're working hard. So that's sometimes what you need to do. Even if you're not, you just need to look like it. Uh, So here's what we're going to do. First point is this. It'll be especially helpful to have your bulletin now because there's nothing on the screen. And it'll be especially helpful for you to have a Bible open in front of you as well. Romans 9, 1 through 3, first point is this. Paul's deep love for Jews who don't trust Jesus. Paul is about to address some really challenging theological questions, okay? Paul is going to, and he's super smart. One thing you get as you read through Paul's letters, you get this guy is very step-by-step logical and very, very smart and intellectual, but that doesn't mean that he's like this cold, hard-hearted, up-in-the-ivory-tower intellectual college professor kind of guy. Now, Paul is a guy who feels things Deeply, And we see that right away at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. He doesn't just know stuff deeply, he feels stuff deeply. 
So before Paul gets to answering some really big, tough, hard questions, he shares from his really big, soft heart. We see that clearly in Romans 9, 1 through 3. Shows us the reality that hopefully truth isn't just something that puffs our heads up, but truth is something that penetrates into our hearts. Paul makes it very clear that he has a heart that has been made new by Jesus. Remember, he was one time a Jewish religious leader, right? And he was very zealous in his knowledge of the Scriptures and even in his persecution of Christians until God came and rescued him and gave him a new heart. And now his heart is breaking for the people who are where he used to be. He used to be very knowledgeable about Scripture, but unaffected by Jesus, even to the point of persecuting Christians. And now his heart breaks for those who are where he used to be. So we see that in Romans 9, 1 through 3. I want you to look at verse 2 in your Bible. This is, if you don't normally bring your Bible, the fact that the screen doesn't work is a good reminder that you probably should. We've become too dependent on screens. Bring your Bible with you. If you don't have one, by the way, we have a, a counter out there that has Bibles. Uh, so pick one up on your way in if you forget to bring yours on a Sunday morning. But verse 2 says this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You, you get that deep feeling that Paul has? He's not just like, I'm kind of sad that some people don't trust Jesus. No, he says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And why is it that Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart? Verse 3 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. His brothers or his kinsmen according to the flesh are his fellow Jewish people. People that trace their ancestry back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul's heart longs for them to know Jesus. Paul is one we're good? Excellent. Paul's heart... No, I gotta, just one second, I've got to do my technology then again. Um, Paul's heart is breaking for the sake that his fellow Jewish brothers would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we see that in verses 1 and 2 and 3 especially. See, Paul is one who at one time experienced and knew that he was under the wrath of God, but he has been declared righteous. Paul is now one in whom the Holy Spirit lives. God is for him. Paul has been adopted, and he can cry out to God the Father, Abba, Father. He was once a slave to sin, but now God has set him free. So we see that in verses 2 and 3. And he says, I would willingly give all that up. I would myself be cut off from Christ if it meant that my brothers would be united with Christ. Do you see that kind of love that he has for lost people? All of these benefits that are mine in Christ, I would give them up. I would again become a slave to sin and the law. I would be cut off from Christ if it meant that other people could come to know Christ. Paul loves the lost Jewish people all around him. 
And so he shares his heart before he shares his mind and God's understanding of what it is that they need to understand next. And then Paul goes in to talk about the benefits and advantages of being a Jew in verses 4 and 5. Now remember that many of the people to whom Paul is writing had come not out of the Jewish faith, but had come out of some pagan religion. They were people that worshipped all sorts of different gods. They didn't even know the God of the Bible. They worshipped a number of other gods. And so all of this was like brand new to them. But Paul is saying, but the Jewish people, they know a lot of this stuff. They, They, among all people, should know what it is to worship the God of the Bible. They have known the God of the Bible, and here's the way that he says it. It's like he's saying to them, what more do you want, people? Look at all these pagans who are coming to faith in Christ, and you who worship the God of the Bible, who promised to send his Messiah, it's like you don't even recognize him. He says, listen, they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption The Jewish people know what it's like to be called God's children, right? He's saying, to you belongs the glory. The Israelites had this history of seeing the glory of God in the temple and worshiping Him there. The covenants, God had made a special relationship and promises to this one group of people. Of all the nations on the earth, He chose one group of people. And it was these people, the Israelites, The giving of the law. They had received the law of God. The Ten Commandments and all the rest of the law had come to this one group of people. The Israelites. The worship in the temple and the promises of God. All of this comes to them. And if that wasn't enough, and the patriarchs, they had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if that was not enough, Jesus himself comes from them. He's one of them. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It's like Paul is saying to them, to his Jewish brothers, who he loves so much, but they have not yet put their faith in Jesus. He says to them, oh, you guys, how can you not get it? Jesus came from you as the fulfillment of everything that you've been longing for. Don't you get it? Put your faith in Jesus. Be reconciled to God. That's Paul's heart that we see very clearly in verses 1 through 5. And the intellectual question that people might be asking then is this. With all of these Jewish people not believing, the question might be, has God's plan failed? God made this plan to call this one people His own that that all the nations on the earth might be blessed through them. And so few of them have put their faith in Christ. So the question might be, has God's plan failed? And that's what he's going to spend the rest of chapters 9 through 11 answering. But he answers it very bluntly right away in verse 6. He gives the answer right away, and then he's going to take the rest of the time explaining that answer. The answer to the question, has God's plan failed, is nope. Nope. God's plan has not failed. We see that right away in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Yes, many people who should be the first to trust in Christ, 
Many of them have not trusted in Christ. But has God's plan failed? Nope. It has not. So this is the last point we're going to spend most of our time here so that we understand this because this is going to help us understand the rest of the next three chapters. God has not failed. And how is it that God has not failed? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What he's saying is just being born into a certain nation or having a certain genealogy does not save you. Not all who are descended from Israel. Just because you can trace your family lineage all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does not mean that you are truly one of God's children. He already covered that. That's basically all of what chapter 4 in Romans is about. Remember that in Romans? You can go back and read that this week if you'd like. But he's going to go a little bit deeper into that idea now. And what he's going to do is he's going to share two examples from their history of how two people descended from Abraham are not saved and not counted as God's people. So he's trying to point out that not everybody who's descended from this one family is part of the family of God. Right? And so God's, God's plan has not failed because it was never his plan to just save everybody who happens to have descended from Abraham. Does that make sense? Tracking with me so far? Because it's going to get a little more complicated. Ready? All right. Example number one. And if you've been around the church for a while and studied some of the Old Testament, this might come a little quicker. For some of you, this might be a little newer. But I think it is quite understandable. So, verses 7 through 9 gives us the first example. The first example is about two people named Isaac and Ishmael. Okay, that's what we see in verses 7 through 9. If you went back to Genesis 12 through 17, okay, this is kind of the, the part of the Bible that Paul is referring back to. Genesis 12 through 17 is a part of the Bible in which we see God making a covenant or an agreement, a special relationship with one man. Of all the men on the face of the earth, God chooses this one man named Abram. And among many other things, God promises this one man named Abram that he will have many descendants. But when God makes this promise to Abram, Abraham is what he later gets named by God. Changes his name just a little bit. When God makes this promise to him, there's a problem. He's old and he doesn't have any kids. Right? So God and his wife's name is Sarah. Okay? And, and the problem is God makes this promise to them, you will have many descendants, and through your descendants all the nations on the earth will be blessed. But they're old, and they have no children. That makes sense? My little chart helpful for you? Aren't you glad we got the screen back up? Abraham and Sarah, getting old, have no kids, but God says, through your descendants all the nations on the earth will be blessed. Well, that seems like a problem. Because they don't have descendants. And so Sarah and Abraham have a plan to kind of like help God out with his plan. And that plan is kind of a strange plan that 
Abraham would spend some time with Sarah's servant named Hagar, and they would conceive a child, and that child's name is Ishmael. Ishmael, however, listen to what it says in Genesis 17. Maybe you can't read that because it's small, but I wanted to get it on the same screen. Genesis 17, 20 and 21 says this. God says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But, listen, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God says, indeed, I did promise that you would have a descendant, and from him would come many descendants, and from those descendants I would bless all the nations of the earth. And yes, Ishmael is your descendant, Abraham, but I did not choose him to be the recipient of this covenant promise. Instead, Sarah will give birth to one in the next year, and his name will be Isaac, and he's the one who will receive the promise. Does that make sense? Still tracking with me? It took me forever to put together these silly little charts, so I hope it's helpful. Like, even if it's not just tell me thank you after, like, hey, Jeremy, thanks for making that chart. Because, yeah, all right. It's easy to type words, but to make these things and have stuff flash up at the right time is hard. But you get the picture. You see the little yellow circle that I put around Abraham, the recipient of God's promise, and it goes to Isaac and not to Ishmael. Okay? So that's example number one. Because here's what we learned from Isaac and Ishmael. In verse 7 it says, not all children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That means that it's not the children of the flesh, because Ishmael is a child of Abraham's flesh, right? Born of the seed of Abraham, but it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, like Isaac, who are counted as offspring. And so what we learn, the principle that we get from this example again, is that God did not fail to keep his promise because he chose one and not the other. Okay, Just because God chose one, Isaac, and not the other, Ishmael, does not mean that God failed to keep his promise. That's part of God's promise. Isaac is chosen to be the heir of God's promise, to be a child of God, and Ishmael is not. That's example number one. And then, in verses 10 through 13, he gives us example number 2. Okay, in 10 through 13, we get example number 2. It's about two more people. Again, one is going to be chosen as one is not. But this one is even less complicated. Last time you had one father but two different mothers. This time you've got same father, same mother. And these boys aren't just brothers, they're twins. Okay, so their names are Jacob and Esau. Verse 10 says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Okay, so we're going to be told about this new birth that's going to take place of these twin boys named Jacob and Esau, and the parents are Isaac and Rebekah. I'm going to have another chart here in a second to help us see that. But I want to go back really quick to Genesis 25 where it tells us about this. In Genesis 25 it says this, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Isaac, remember, was the descendant of Abraham, the heir of God's promise. Now, his wife, Rebekah, is also barren. 
So he prays, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived, and the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall actually serve the younger. Okay, so example number two is these twins that will be born to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah are married to each other. Isaac is the heir of God's promise, and they are going to give birth to twins. One's name is Esau. He's the older of the two. He's born first, and with being the older, typically comes some specific blessings, right? And Jacob is the younger, but Rebekah is told while they're still in her womb that actually it's going to be reversed, and the younger one is going to serve the older one. Or, I mean, the older one's going to serve the younger one, right? And as it goes on in verses 11 through 13 to explain here in Romans chapter 9, we find that one of these is chosen to be the heir of God's promise, and one is not. Jacob, the younger one, is chosen to be the heir of God's promise, and Esau is not. Does that make sense? Okay, it looks like people are tracking. Either that or you just want to be nice to me. But, here we go. Romans 11 through 13 explains this a little more. I just want you to see that picture so you kind of get the idea in your head of what's happening. Verses 11 through 13 say this. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Okay? So, this, this choice by God that one would be the heir of his promise and become his child and the other would not happened while they were still in their mother's womb. Right? Neither of them had done anything good or bad. God didn't choose Jacob because Jacob was just a swell guy and Esau wasn't. That was not Jacob was a super deceptive guy and Esau was kind of foolish. Both of them had their faults. Both of them were sinners. And God didn't choose them because one was better than the other. It was before, before they had yet been born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Why did God choose one and not the other? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. Emphasizing again, which has been emphasized all through the book of Romans, it's not because of the family you're born into, and it's not because you were just better than everybody else. You don't get saved by God. You don't become one of God's children because you're better than all the other people or because you're born into the right family. Get those two ideas out of your head. You are not saved because you're really good or because you're born into the right family. You're saved because God has chosen to save you. It's because of Him who calls. And then it ends... With this verse, verse 12 and 13, she was told the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, this is Paul's paraphrase of Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now some of you read that like, hold on, this is where it starts to get a little bit like, this is rubbing me the wrong way just a bit. You're saying before they were even born, God chose to love the one and hate the other. What does he mean by, hey, I thought God loved everyone. What is it? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, 
this is like a Hebrew idiom, so we don't understand it if we're not reading in Hebrew. If you would have been like a normal Hebrew reader uh, reading the book of, of Malachi, Jesus uses this same thing at one point when he says that compared to our love for him and our devotion to him, we ought to hate our families. Remember that in the New Testament? And Jesus doesn't mean literally that we, we hate our family, but just compared to our love for and commitment to him, our relationship to our family ought to even look like hate. And so God is certainly making a choice of one over the other. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. There is a preference from God not based on their works or their inherent goodness, not based on the family they came from because they're coming from the same womb, but based on his purpose of election because of him who calls, God chooses the one and not the other. So again, the principle is this. The promise depends on God's election call. God didn't fail to keep his promise because he chose one and not the other. That's part of God's promise. Jacob is chosen to be the heir of God's promise, and Esau's not. It's not because one was better than the other. When some people are not saved, that does not mean that God has failed to keep his promise. That's a principle that we can see, I think, pretty clearly here in Romans chapter 9, taking us back to Genesis. When God chooses one person from all the nations of the earth and chooses for that person to be his people, we don't say that that's unfair. The only thing that's unfair is that God chooses anyone, right? That we are all deserving of God's wrath for our sin and rebellion against him, but in his grace and his mercy, God elects to choose some. And so, again, if the question of the Christians in Rome that Paul is trying to answer, if their question is, why are so few Jewish people saved? Why are so few Jewish people saved through faith in Christ? Paul's answer in Romans 9 is, well, it's not because God just left it up to them. Paul's answer in Romans 9 is, well, some people are saved and some people are not because God gives them the free choice and he doesn't want to make them robots. That's often the answer that we give, but that's not the answer that we see in Romans chapter 9. Rather, the answer we see in Romans chapter 9 is because it was never God's plan to save everyone. If it was left up to us, none of us would choose God. The primary, that's the first decisive factor, is not their works or our works, but God's election and call. Now, this is hard to absorb, hard to get your mind around. You might say like, well, but don't, but what about, and there's a lot of discussion that you might have, and I go ahead and have that in your life group. Go ahead and have that discussion with me. I would love to have that discussion. I've told you over and over again, my goal is not to get you to believe a certain thing that I, I want to just try and teach Scripture faithfully. Your, your immediate reaction might be, but what about human responsibility? Don't we have the free will to make free choices? And I would say, yes, we do. Of course we do. And if you keep reading in the book of Romans, the very next chapter, Romans chapter 10, makes it pretty clear that it's our responsibility 
to preach the gospel to all peoples because if we don't preach the gospel, they don't hear it and they can't repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, which is a free choice that they make. And so one little uh, helpful for me at least definition, short definition of the doctrine of election is that those who freely come to God are those whom God has freely chosen. Those who freely come to God are those whom God has freely chosen. That's helpful for me as I try and understand what's going on in Romans 9 and all throughout the rest of the Bible. But all of that does not take away the fact that we have responsibility as humans to make real choices that really matter for all of eternity. The emphasis, though, in Romans 9 is on God's sovereignty and God's election and God's faithfulness. And and that might be like a little bit jarring for you, and it was at one time for me, and the more that I have studied Scripture and the more that I have lived life and seen my own unfaithfulness, this sounds like really, really good news to me. Because I know my own heart, and then if God had not done something in me first, that I would not have responded to Him with repentance and faith. And to me, this is comforting good news, because I am not sovereign, I would not choose God on my own, and I am often unfaithful. But Romans 9 is there to remind us that God is sovereign, that God chooses us, and that God is always faithful, and He has not failed to keep His promise. All right. Application. Application, I think, uh, here, there's a lot of ways we could go with this. Next week is basically a continuation of this week. I just couldn't bite it all off in one sermon. I didn't know if any of us could. So, <coughs> we'll get into that a little more next week. And I encourage you to read the rest of the chapter 9 before you come next week. But I want to focus our application on this. Because this is one whole section, 9 through 11. And I want us to notice two things. I want us to notice how Romans 9 through 11 ends. I'm going to send us out this morning, as I often have other mornings as well, by reading Romans 11, 33 to 36. We'll get there in five weeks. But I'm going to read it before we leave this morning. I think one of the applications of studying Romans 9 through 11 ought to be that we, like Paul, end up responding to God with worship. That song we sang earlier, Behold Our God, much of that song comes from Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of His words? Who has known, who can teach the one who knows all things? Behold our God. Right? That, that, that this, all this stuff to you, you might like try and process it like, That's really hard to understand. I'm not sure even that I I like it, but it's really hard to get my mind around. How does God's sovereignty and my responsibility work? In some ways, it's just mysterious and I don't know. But hopefully what it causes us to do is respond like Paul does where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. 
who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. That's, I think, one response that studying Romans 9, if you want to let your emotions boil over in some way, don't let it be in an argument with somebody about election and predestination. Let it be emotions boiling over in worship of the God who we don't totally comprehend. And let it be this. The second thing which I want to focus on today is this. Let the application of it be this. Look at how this begins. Don't forget what we went over at the beginning. Verses 1 through 3. May we have hearts like Paul's. Hearts that break for those who do not yet trust in Jesus. Paul would give his life for the proclamation of the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus with all people, Gentiles and Jews, that they might repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. He would give his life to that. Did he believe in God's election and his sovereign choice? And his, Yes, he did. And did he go and proclaim the gospel? Yes, he gave his life wholeheartedly to that. And may that be what we do as well. Because... Paul, who went to all nations and spoke other languages that people with different colored skin who worship different gods would come to trust in Jesus, that, that that heart that Paul had would be our heart is my desire. Because like Paul, we live in a world of 7.38 billion people and over 3 billion of them, that's 42% of the people in the world, are unreached. Which means that, not that there's many more than that that aren't Christians. But unreached simply means that they live in a place where it's quite likely that they will never personally get to know another Christian. They live in a place where less than 2% of the population are believers in Jesus. That qualifies them as unreached because it's quite likely they'll never meet. The United States is not a place of unreached people groups. There's many, many other places in the world with lots of unreached people groups. There's little pockets now in the United States of that as well. But people all over the world live in a community where they don't have any access to hearing the good news of Jesus. And you know what the reality is? Unless they hear the gospel and repent and trust in Jesus, they will be cut off from God forever. Do we actually believe that? That's what Scripture teaches. But I think if we actually believed that, more of us would spend a lot more time praying than we do right now. We would probably give a lot more than we give right now. And we would probably go a lot more quickly than we're going right now. I hope that what Romans 9 might do is cause our emotions to boil over, but not in an argument, but in a desire to see lost people come to a saving faith in Christ. We've sung a song before, and we're going to sing it to close, that we are facing a task that's unfinished. And I hope that that task, that the, the gospel would go to all the world. I hope that that task would be a task that drives us to our knees. 
that we see this need that is undiminished. It's not a need that's like, oh, there's not as much of a need for missions anymore. Oh, no, the world's population is swelling, and the need for missions is getting greater and greater. It's a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We live in extreme comfort and luxury as Americans. And as we see the need for people to hear the gospel, may we feel rebuked in our slothful ease, living lives for our own comfort and entertainment. And may we who rejoice to know Him renew before His throne the solemn pledge we owe Him to go and make Him known. That's what we're here for. And I hope that's what Romans 9 motivates us to. Let's pray. Father, I don't know if that was effective in helping us to not only understand the truth about who you are and how you work in Romans chapter 9, or if it was effective to motivate us to worship you and to make a commitment that we would go to all the world proclaiming the gospel of Christ. I don't know. But I am confident, not in my ability, but in the work of your Holy Spirit, who works through your word in your people, that you might cause your glory to come about, even to be magnified through this time spent in your word. I pray that as we wrestle with this on our own, in our life groups, that the end result of it would not be a divisive argument, but that it would be a renewed passion to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to all people. That this is what we would give our lives to. Thank you that you are worthy to be worshipped by all peoples in all nations. And we confess before you that we care too little about that. We care too much about other things that are much less important. I pray for those who are sitting here this morning who have yet to hear again of the grace and mercy of God in Christ, who have yet to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. I pray that your spirit might be doing even that work in this place today. Help us to go to all the world, maybe an unreached people group or maybe some unreached people at our school, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, or in our family, and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And we do that with great hope that you, despite what anybody's life looks like right now, whether they're super deceptive like Jacob was, you can save them because you are a mighty and sovereign God and you are filled with unfailing love. Thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.